Hi folks, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to transform lives by allowing people to commit to studying through the entire Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you're here for the first time, then why not click on the subscribe button wherever it is you get your podcasts from and make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. If you're here for the very first time today, then do hang around at the end as I'll tell you lots of ways you can connect and receive extra free resources and also ways in which you can even support this ministry if you want to. So with that said, we'll leave it there and I'll see you at the back end and let's drop back in and pick up in the text where we left off last time. You're joining us today in Matthew chapter 13 in season 3 of the Bible Project Daily Podcast and we're well into the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13 and we've been looking together at this long series of parables that Jesus uses to teach the people and we're picking up today in Matthew 13:34, continuing through to the end of the chapter. And we're going to have a series of parables and teachings and explanations come thick and fast at us over the next 25 minutes or so. So the first one we'll pick up is Matthew 13, 44, which is the story of the finding of the hidden treasure. And Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure which lay hidden in the field. A man found it and hid it, and as a result of his joy, away he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. Now, although this parable might sound a little bit strange to us in this day and age, it would have sounded perfectly natural to people listening to what Jesus was saying in that day. In fact, even today, this story paints a picture which many people in the Middle East would understand well. In the ancient world, and even today in some corners of the world, there were no banks and are no banks, certainly not in the way that we can understand them or a way we could trust them, and at this time they were definitely not available to the ordinary man or woman. Ordinary people used the ground as the safest hiding place to keep their most cherished belongings. Now this we can recognise as logical in a land where at any point someone's garden or someone's farm field might become a scene of a battle or the overrunning of another nation. And at that time, the Palestine, the Israel area, was probably the most fought over country in the whole world at that time. When the threat of war appeared, it was common practice for people to hide their valuables by burying it somewhere in the ground, after which they would take flight in the hope that they would one day, they would come back and would return and regain those possessions again. In fact, Roman historian Josephus speaks of the gold and the silver and the precious artefacts which the Jews had hidden underground on many occasions against, as he described it, the uncertainties and fortunes of war. You will remember that Palestine in the time of Jesus was under Roman occupation and therefore was under Roman law. But in the ordinary day-to-day of life, things were still done and adjudicated under traditional Jewish law. And in regard to hidden treasure, the Jewish rabbinic law was very clear. The find always belonged to the finder, 
whether it was a dropped coin or money or even discarded food or something buried, all of which always belonged to the finder. Having said that, what we're dealing with here, as we deal with in any parable, we're meant to focus on what the story means. The details are never meant to be overly stressed. The parable always had just one main point to make, and we need to, when approaching it, make everything subservient to the parable. It's useful to know the background, to understand what it meant to mean at the time, but once we know that, we need to focus on the meaning. And in this parable, the great point is joy in the discovery of the man who found it. And he was in fact willing to give up everything to make the greater treasure his own. Nothing else in this parable really matters. The lesson of this parable is first that the man found the precious thing, not so much by chance you need to notice, but as a result of his digging in the field, as a result of his day's work. It's true to say that he stumbled upon it unexpectedly, but he did so as he was going about his daily business. Other translations of this passage make it clear that he was working in the field. He must have been digging deep, not just superficially scraping the surface in order to have come across a treasure buried there. So he must have been going about his business of tending to the field with a certain amount of persistence and diligence. And what that tells me is that there is a sub-lesson here that's saying in a sense that true happiness and true satisfaction and in a sense a true sense of God can be found in an honest day's work. But the second lesson of this parable is this, that it is worth any sacrifice to enter the kingdom of God. And many would say that that is the primary teaching and meaning here. In fact, the Lord's Prayer tells us that the kingdom of God is about being and living in a state of being upon the earth where we are doing God's will as perfectly as it is in heaven. Therefore, to enter the kingdom of God in this life, at some level, it must be about accepting and doing the will of God in this life. And that means that there, on occasion, will be a great sacrifice something that we have to give up in order to do God's will. This man, he discovered the treasure, he discovered this situation, this truth in a moment. And God's will can come upon us in a moment, in a flash of inspiration by the Holy Spirit. However, to accept it and to live it out will often mean giving up certain aims and ambitions of our own. We may have to abandon certain habits and things that are dear to us. We may have to even give up a way of life. We may have to lay aside things which are very difficult for us to lay aside. Or we may have to take on things that are difficult if we are truly to be a a disciple. We may have to live a life of self-denial. We may have to surrender the pleasure of the present in order to gain the greater gift of eternity. In other words, we are to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And this passage and this parable tells us that in truth there is no other way ultimately to peace of mind and heart in this life and to glory in the next. But it reminds us that it is indeed worth giving up those things, worth giving up everything to accept and do the will of God. Okay, the next parable follows on immediately and it's what's called the precious pearl or in some of the older translations it's referred to as the pearl of great price. 
So 13, 45 and 46 say this. Again, the kingdom is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, in the ancient world, pearls had a very special place in the heart of people. People's desire to possess a pearl because it was a beautiful thing. It was almost unique in that it had a monetary value along with great beauty. And there was a real aesthetic joy in simply possessing and looking at a pearl. Now the main sources of pearl in those days were rather far off from the land of Israel, Palestine as the Romans called it, and the merchants would scour the markets of the world to find pearls of great beauty. So the purpose of this parable is to plant truths in the minds of the listener, just like every other, and we need to understand that this pearl here stands as an image of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said so. To the ancient peoples, as we have seen, a pearl was one of the most beautiful possessions someone could lay hold of, so it was a very appropriate illustration. That means to me that the kingdom of heaven is also the greatest, most beautiful thing that any person can possess. But remember, Jesus has just reminded people in the previous paragraph that to be in the kingdom of God is about accepting and doing the will of God. Within this parable, there is therefore an implied warning. It says that there, yes, this is the pearl of great price, but there are other pearls in the world, but there is only one pearl of ultimate value. That is to say that there are many fine things in the world, many things in which we might find beauty. In art, literature, music, even in the triumphs of human endeavour, sport, human spirit, we can find greatness and beauty in all these things. We can also find beauty in serving our fellow human beings, even if that service springs from a humanitarian rather than purely Christian motives. And we too can find beauty in human relationships, particularly the family. These are all indeed beautiful things. But they all represent a lower type of beauty. They are there to point the way to a higher type of beauty, the supreme beauty that lies in the acceptance of the will of God. Now that's not to completely discredit these other things. They too are pearls, but they are not the supreme pearl. They are not the pearl of great price. The pearl of great price is gained by a willingness to be obedient to the will of God, which therefore makes us children of God. It's also worth noting as an aside that the man in the previous story, he was working in the field and was not actually looking for treasure. And then in the second illustration, both seeking in a sense and finding the same thing. But the man here is someone who's searching for it all their lives and they come upon it. In this parable, it is someone who spends their whole life in search for this great pearl. But no matter whether the discovery was like the the first person and was as a result of a moment of insight or like in the second parable as a result of a lifetime search, the reaction is seemed to be the same. Everything has to be sold. Everything has to be given up and sacrificed to gain that most precious thing. Once again, we are left with the same truth, I believe, that however we discover the will of God for ourselves, whether it be a flashing light of a moment's illumination and inspiration by the Holy Spirit or at the end of a long process of a conscientious search, it is absolutely worth us unhesitatingly accepting the beautiful gift of God's love in Christ. 
no matter what the personal cost. So the next parable follows straight on after and it widens the perspective slightly for us from the individual to the community. And I've called this the parable of the great catch and the separation. And Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and then they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be a wailing and a gnashing of teeth. It seems to me it would be the most natural thing in the world that Jesus should use the illustration for fishing because he was talking to fishermen here. It was as if he said, Look, look how your daily work can speak to you of the things of heaven. Now, at that time, in the region of Galilee and Palestine, there were two main ways of fishing, and he uses the fishing as a way of illustrating what he wants to say about the kingdom of heaven. Now, the two main ways were, number one was the casting net. This was a hand net which was cast mainly from the shore or were standing up to the the middles in water. The net was in the shape of a sort of bell tent shape with a long cord fastened to the, the top of it. This was then tied to the arm and the net was folded in a way that when it was thrown it would expand in the air to its widest circumference, then land in the water and would then gently drop to the bottom. Now the fisherman would carefully watch the water and when he spied his prey, the fish, he would cast out the net, expanding it as it flies and its weighted edge would settle down to the bottom and the fish for the main would be unaware that the, the net had been cast and then he would use the cord to draw the net slowly in, thereby, of course, catching the fish within it. But the second way of fishing was what was called the dragnet, and this is the way that Jesus is referring to in this parable. The net was a great square net with cords at each corner, and it was weighted so that it hung as if it were almost upright in the water. But when the boat began to move, the net was drawn into the shape of a cone, and the cone would sweep up all kinds of fish and and marine animals as it went along. The net was then drawn to land, pulled up ashore with the boat, and the catch would then be pulled either into the boat or onto the shore. And then it would be separated. The useless material was flung away, and the good would be put into containers and would be kept because it was of value. Now, it seems to me that there are two very obvious important lessons in this parable. Firstly, we need to see that the nature of the dragnet is that it does not and cannot discriminate. It is bound to draw up all kinds of things as it draws itself through the water. Its contents are bound to be a great mixture of marine life. Now, if we apply this idea to the church and our roles as disciples of Jesus Christ, an instrument of God's kingdom on earth, it means that the church cannot discriminate who might be drawn into it. It is not of our control. It is bound to be a mixture of all kinds of people, useful and useless, good and bad, those with good motivations and those who are ill-disposed underneath. But they might still be drawn by the word of God and by the love of the community expressed within that church. Now, there has always through church history been roughly two views of the church and how it is made up. Some view it as exclusive and some inclusive. The 
exclusive view holds that the church is for the people who are good, the people who are really and fully committed, people who are quite different from those around them in the world. And there is an attraction to that view, but it is not, I believe, the view of the New Testament that Jesus is showing us here. Apart from anything else, if we have that hold that view of the church, then who is it is actually doing the judging? We're actually told, of course, that we should not judge. It's not any of our individual places to say who is committed to Christ and who is not. The inclusive view of the church would view the church as instinctively being open to all, just like this dragnet here. And as long as it is a human institution, it is bound to be a flawed mixture. And I believe that it is exactly what this parable is teaching. However, let me be clear, it doesn't mean we change our teaching on what the Bible says or what Jesus says in order or to be motivated to try and allow more people to come in and allow more people to feel included without a demand, a moral demand on them. We speak the truth and we allow people to respond and that will bring in who it brings in and then, friends, we leave the rest to God. But remember... Equally, this parable teaches at the end that there will indeed be a time of separation and it will come when the good and the bad, the saved and the unsaved, are sent to their respective destinations. That separation, however certain as it is, it is not our work in this time, it is God's judgment in his time. Therefore, it is our duty and our call to simply gather all who will come and not to separate them, but just to leave the final judgment to God. So finally, Jesus explains what he's been saying here in these parables, and he talks about how we can use, that those receiving it, particularly in that day, are able to use old gifts in a new way. And it says this, Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, things new and old. When Jesus had finished speaking about the kingdom, he asked his disciples very clearly here if they've understood what he said. And it is true that they understood, well, at least in part. And then Jesus goes on to compare the scribes, the people who instruct people from a Jewish background about the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying to a group of people, of course, who are mainly Jewish followers, is that you are able to understand this because, in effect, you've come to me with a fine heritage. You've come to me with all the teaching of the law and the prophets behind you. A scribe from that time came before God and Jesus with a lifetime of the study of the law of God as revealed in the Old Testament and its commandments. That background would help them understand what he was saying. But what he's saying is after you've now been instructed by me on top of that knowledge, not only will you know how things used to be and know what you used to know, but you will now know those things like you never knew before, even before the knowledge which I have added on top is going to be. In other words, I'm going to illuminate everything that has come before by what I tell you today. 
And that, of course, applies to us today as Christians living in the United Kingdom, and I would say a great many other countries around the world, we have a background of a Christian heritage, which we should not abandon and recognise as by accepting that we have been given the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of those who went before us. But there's also something interesting going on here, which tells me that Jesus, in a sense, never intends any of us to forget what we have already known or learnt in life so far. Every single person comes to the teachings of the Bible and before the words of Jesus Christ, and we come with some gifts and some abilities of our own. And Jesus does not ask us to give those gifts up here. Many people think that when someone acknowledges Christ, that they must give up all the things of the past and just concentrate on so-called religious things. But a teacher should not give up his scholarship when they become a Christian. Rather, they should use their intellectual ability for Christ. An entrepreneur should not give up their business. Rather, they should just run it as a Christian should. And if it prospers, then they can help more people to come in and work in a Christian environment. And the athlete, they need not give up their sport, but they should play their sport from henceforward as a Christian should. Jesus did not come to empty our life, but he came to fill it, not to diminish it, but to enrich it. Here we see Jesus telling everyone, don't abandon those gifts you already had, but use them. Use them more amazingly in the light of the knowledge and the insights which you now have been given. And then finally, Jesus now will close off this passage by talking about the great barrier that unbelief can be in the minds of those who might receive the message. So picking up the last five verses at verse 53, he says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brother James, John, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they all not with us? Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended by him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there, because of their unbelief. It seems natural, I suppose, that at some point Jesus would return to where he came from, repay a visit to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And yet, this is a very challenging thing for him to do. We can see it here. And that is true still today. The hardest place for a preacher to preach is the church in which they were a boy, or perhaps even in this day and age, very difficult if they grew up as a teenager in that environment. There is a real danger that Jesus would not be given the opportunity to speak here and that was true in a sense because although he was allowed to speak when he did speak he encountered hostility and disbelief they would not listen to him because they could not perceive that anyone who had lived amongst them and had seen them as a child had any right to speak in the way that jesus was speaking the prophet, as it happens, and he quotes from the Old Testament, had no honour in his own country, and their attitude to him was to raise a barrier which made it impossible for Jesus to have any real effect upon them. There is a great lesson here. In any church, the atmosphere created by the community of believers can be just as important as the message. 
the congregation brings its own ambience, its own message with it. The atmosphere can either be a barrier through which the preacher's words cannot penetrate, or on the other hand, it might also be something that creates a welcoming environment, creates an expectancy that even a basic message can become a living flame. Again, we are being told that we should not judge anyone, anyone by their background or their family connections, for good or for bad, but judge them by what they say. Many a powerful message has been killed stone dead, not because there was anything wrong with what was being said, but because in the mind of the hearers, they were so prejudiced against that messenger that they never had a chance of it being heard. There was never a chance of it being heard. When we meet together to listen to the word of God, we must in all circumstances come with an eager expectancy and must think not of the individual who is standing before us, but try and seek the Holy Spirit who might just be speaking through them. Okay, folks, that's it for today. I hope you find that helpful, and we'll plan to pick up again tomorrow at the beginning of chapter 14. Now, before I go, I'd just like to update you on a new way in which you can connect with this ministry and support it, if you will. All the resources I make are freely available and in the public domain. They're for you to use in whatever way you want, in your own personal discipleship or in helping others understand the Bible and the, the Word of God. Helping others have their lives transformed also. And I'd like to thank each and every one of you who are listening to this. Now you can click and subscribe it, and it is always going to be free, always in the public domain. This is a free resource and ministry to help encourage people and transform lives through the study of the the Bible every day. And thank you for doing that. But I've now made the decision to offer an opportunity where you can actually support this work too, by following the link to becoming a subscriber. This podcast is the main resource of my ministry and the purpose of this podcast is a commitment to guide Christians and anybody else to seek an intimate relationship with the entire Bible every day through the study of it. In other words, discipleship. And I'm very grateful for any of you who would decide to be willing to partner with me to help me maintain this ministry as a free resource and enable me to continue to offer it as free on as many platforms as possible. In time, and if financial resources permit, I would love to be able to create and publish a series of other Christian devotional podcasts, which I also would desire to make freely available. One option going down this route would be the advertising option, but it's not the route I want to go. I do accept the occasional ad, which raises a few dollars a month, but I only accept them as a way of supporting other Christian works, podcasts, and ministries. For every 15 offers of an ad placement within this podcast, I reckon I accept about one. 
So the other route is allowing people to partner with me by saying, I value what you do and I want to support it. And by supporting me, you're not only enabling me to do this, but you're helping support Christian Outreach on a worldwide scale. This podcast is currently listened to in over 160 different countries worldwide. And as well as the main podcast, there are other resources that I make available and would wish to make available, more practical discipleship-based courses, like the one I did recently on sermon preparation. But I'd like to do others on church history and culture to try and help people find ways in which the Christian faith intersects in people's lives as they live them today. So there's an opportunity now by following the link that you can subscribe to what I've called the Bible Project Plus. But there's an opportunity there for you to partner with me for a few dollars a month or a few pounds a month and thereby help maintain this ministry and enable it to stay free and hopefully to grow and to impact more people and transform more people through the study of the Bible. So I hope you'll give that some thought. It only needs a tiny, tiny percentage of the people out there to do that, to to cover the costs of providing this resource every day. So with that said, I'll leave it there for today. And I do trust I'll see you back here tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.